Father God, thank you for this opportunity we have to gather in freedom and to look at your word and to hear you speak to us. We pray that you would speak into our hearts, into our lives, that you would challenge us, that you would nudge us, that you would make us feel uncomfortable if we need that, uh, and that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit now in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder what you would do if you were given a sort of no-strings-attached one million pound gift. Uh, we were on holiday last week in Northumberland, and I don't know what it is, but I've got a bit of an obsession with houses, and I think probably it's to do with the fact that I've never actually lived in my own house, uh, because being a vicar, you sort of live in the church's house. So I, I was walking along these, uh, past these amazing, beautiful houses in places like Bamburgh, and just like properly lusting after uh, these beautiful houses, and I bought in my head about a dozen different houses uh, during the four days uh, that we were down in Northumberland. I wonder what you would do with a one million pound windfall. Why don't you just talk to your neighbor? What would you do if somebody just came down and gave you a million pounds? Just for a minute, talk to your neighbor. Okay, um, fortunately we can't hear from everybody, but I suspect there was a few, you know, we'd pay off the mortgage, uh, we might do an extension, you might have gone on that holiday in your head very briefly that you've always wanted to go on, you've given up work, maybe you would have paid off your kids or your grandkids' education or university fees or whatever, uh, you might have given it away, you might have gone on an amazing shopping spree, uh, you might have just invested it because you're that sort of person. Um, it's the sort of thing that dreams are made of, isn't it? Um, I wonder if you've ever dreamt about what it would be like uh, to win the lottery, if you do the lottery, or uh, to get one of those PPI windfalls. Who, who gets that? They're all over telly, but who actually has got one of those PPI thingamajiggles? Or even if you've uh, dreamt about earning just that little bit more, and what earning what that little bit more uh, would do to your life, then if you have done any of those things, uh, then this reading this morning is speaking to you and it's speaking to me as well. Because in this passage uh, in 1 Timothy, Paul is telling the early church to wake up. He's saying, wake up. Realize that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Makes us feel slightly uncomfortable having just spent a million pounds quite easily in our heads. The, root, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Uh, one commentator uh, that I was reading this week talks about how money deserves the same caution as a loaded gun. Money deserves the same caution as a loaded gun. Very timely this week. If we're not careful with it, it can destroy you, it can destroy your family, it can destroy communities, it can destroy your faith. Money deserves the same caution as a loaded gun. 
And so in Paul's first letter to Timothy, he's just finished uh, giving Timothy instructions uh, about how slaves and masters uh, should be treated. And now in 1 Timothy chapter 6, do grab a Bible or get it on your phone if you've got one. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, he goes on to some other tricky issues uh, that are holding back the spiritual growth of the church. And these all uh, revolve around the issue of money. And so firstly, Paul is warning the early church about false teachers. Then he goes on uh, to talk about uh, um, where you find your contentment. So where do you find your contentment? And then thirdly, he speaks to those who covet. So first he speaks about false teachers And then he's asking people to look at where they find contentment. And then finally, to those who covet. And we're going to look at those three aspects of this letter this morning. So firstly, uh, he talks about false teachers in verses 3 to 5. False teachers have obviously been causing some issue uh, in the Ephesian church because if you read further back in 1 Timothy, you hear Paul speaking a number of times already uh, about false teachers. And here, though, he is accusing false teachers of deviating from the truth of the gospel and of godly teaching. These uh, false teachers are peddling uh, a teaching which is based not on Christ and is not leading to Christ-likeness. And as a result, they're causing all sorts of disunity and division amongst the church. Their main focus is actually getting people to respond financially. Um, At the heart of everything, Paul is accusing them of being motivated by money, not by Christ and drawing people to Christ, of making money from their teaching. He says they are lovers of money who are peddling a message that godliness leads to financial gain. These false teachers are teaching that godliness leads to financial gain. And unfortunately, uh, this wasn't a sort of flash-in-the-pan thing that happened in the first century church, but we see it poking its head through the history of the next 2,000 years of the church, where uh, attempts have been made to commercialize the gospel. I'm sure you can think of of times where you've seen that happen. Uh, But just a couple that came to my mind. In the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, um, it became apparent that indulgences, uh, which were the sort of prayers and disciplines you had to do to atone for your sins, to reduce the years that you spent in purgatory, uh, had become commercialized. The church had set up a system in the Middle Ages uh, where people could buy indulgences. Uh, And basically, they were paying money uh, so that their time in purgatory could be reduced. Uh, And the Reformation put a stop to that. But it didn't uh, mean that the message of godliness for financial gain had become a thing of the past, because again, we saw it poking its head up time and again through the next 1,000, 1,500 years of the church. The prospect of 500 years of the church, the Reformation didn't happen in 500 AD. Um, the prosperity gospel, the prosperity gospel, otherwise known as the health and wealth movement, has grabbed people's attention and devotion 
especially in certain parts of the USA and Africa, but all over the world. Uh, the prosperity gospel proclaims that faith is rewarded by good health and increased wealth. Preachers pro proclaim that good health and financial gain are the divine right of Bible-believing Christians, which implies that material poverty or bad physical health are a sign of, at best, a lack of faith or, at worst, sin in your life. Uh, but the major flaw at the heart of the prosperity gospel is that it overrides the need for grace. It's all about what we can do. We can pray more. We can demand more. We can give more. We could have more faith. Uh, we could be a better Christian rather than relying on what Christ has done for you. And fundamentally, the problem with the prosperity gospel is that it's based on success rather than on scripture. It's the sort of gospel that's promoted uh, by people such as Joel Osteen. You might have heard of him. He's a very well-known uh, preacher and church leader uh, from Lakewood Church in Texas, who incidentally lives in this house, his $10.5 million mansion. And this teaching on money is at odds with Jesus' teaching. Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Seek God above all else, not money, not prosperity, not possessions or status or success. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And Jesus takes it further too. He makes it clear that having wealth can be a distraction uh, from following God. Jesus says clearly, you can't have two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. He blatantly challenges uh, the rich young ruler. Sell all you have, give it to the poor, and then follow me. And then he sees that the man is struggling uh, to let go, and he declares this. It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Hardly the words of somebody who's advocating storing up your treasure on earth. Jesus wasn't anti-money, though. And some people interpret his words of saying, you know, we've all got to be uh, poverty-stricken at all times if we're going to be proper Christians. He just made it clear that possessions didn't make you right with God didn't give you that extra special place in the kingdom. In fact, he, he, made, he took it further and says uh, that actually money can get in the way of our relationships with God. And I wonder if that is challenging us this morning. Does our thinking, does our planning, our stacking up of possessions or making money, does that actually become or has become more important than our relationship with Jesus? So secondly, Paul moves on to challenge us about where we get our sense of contentment from. Contentment, just think about that word for a moment. The dictionary defines contentment as being a sense of happiness and satisfaction. Where is that sense of happiness and satisfaction in your life? Where does it come from, that sense of contentment? 
Paul says in verse 6 of our reading from 1 Timothy 6, Godliness with contentment is gain. Godliness with contentment is gain, not money. He's saying be content. Be content with what you have and who you are. If you have enough, don't constantly uh, be striving for more. Be content. We live in a culture uh, where the mentality isn't just that we work to get enough money to live. Uh, We don't just work to get enough, uh, enough to buy food, put clothes on our backs, put a roof over our heads. No, we work to get more stuff, to achieve that higher level of happiness and satisfaction that the world says that we need. And that puts pressure on all of us, doesn't it? We need more stuff, and so we earn more money. Money becomes all about happiness and contentment. And it's all down to to how much we earn. And so, therefore, we, we get surprised when we feel discontent. And so we get caught in this trap of feeling discontent, and so we strive for more. Uh, We get one house, uh, and we're aiming all the time for that bigger or that better house or the one in the the different area. We strive for more, and yet we still feel discontent. We get the car, and then we start saving for our next car all the time. We get discontent, and so we strive for more. We live beyond our means in order to achieve the life or the lifestyle that we think we deserve or that the world tells us uh, that we deserve. We strive and we still feel discontent. We want to go on better holidays, don't we? We want to buy nicer clothes and go to nicer shops. We strive for that easy life. Uh, And the lie lie is, is that that life is associated with money. But actually, we will be content if we have all this stuff in this lovely house. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller was one of the richest men of his time, uh, who was asked by a reporter how much money he reckoned he needed to live comfortably on, to be content. And he said this, a little more than I can get, a little more than I can get. And this materialistic culture that we live in, in the Western world, convinces us uh, that if we have this sense of unease, of discontentment, if we feel that something is missing, rather than going and spending time with people or seeking God, we go and we, if the going's tough, we go and we binge on something, whether it's binging on alcohol or binging on food or binging on shopping, anything in excess to fill the gap. Think about shopping for a moment. Shopping has become like a form of self-medication against the reality of the world and against the reality of lives. Uh, We think, I'll buy a new coat or I'll buy a new pair of shoes and I'll buy something pretty uh, for my house and then I'll feel so much better. And sometimes that can lead to massive debt, can't it? Uh, we've all seen the documentaries on telly or read about in magazines and newspapers. I was reading about a woman called Joanne this week who earns £21,000 a year uh, and she spends at least £8,000 a year on clothes. Uh, and she's got a £30,000 uh, credit card bill. It did for a moment make me feel a little bit better about those times when I go to the charity shop in Stockbridge. I love the charity shops in Stockbridge. 
and I spend 15 pounds and I don't tell John that I've been shopping again, uh, but I haven't got a 30,000 pound credit card debt and I definitely don't spend 8,000 pounds on clothes a year. But the writer of Ecclesiastes hits the nail on the head when he says this, whoever loves money never has enough money. Have you noticed as well uh, that in this money-dominated Western society that we live in, uh, this search for happiness, this search for contentment has become completely dependent on you. It's all about your success. It's all about me, myself, and I. Make your own life. Make your own success. Make your own failure. Even sort of popular spirituality is very self-centered. You know, the basis of yoga and other uh, non-Christian meditative uh, practices are all about finding peace and well-being within yourself. And this is the false teaching of our age. The focus is on you being the source of your contentment. But Paul says this in Philippians 4, verse 12. I know what it is to be in need, he says, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in, every and, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this not through myself, not through my earning potential, not through finding inner peace or going shopping. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul is saying Christ is the only one who is all-sufficient, who can bring us deep contentment that we long for. In Christ, we can get off the treadmill of that constant striving all the time for material gain, the next best thing, the next best thing. And we can step off and we can stand still and we can rest in him and we can find that contentment that we and so much of the world long for. This search for contentment can't be found in money because ultimately, That's a temporary thing. We can't take it with us. Uh, Paul in our reading says this, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Uh, Job puts it a little bit more starkly in a very Job way. Naked I came and naked I depart. John Stott says that life is like a pilgrimage between two forms of nakedness, birth and death. Uh, And our possessions are, if you like, our, our traveling luggage, our traveling luggage from one point of nakedness to the next, but they're not the stuff of eternity. And so we need to travel light. We need to travel light. Jesus talks about money, and the church should be talking about money in the way that we are. We should be speaking out and acting radically when it comes to politics and business and the banking world. We should be challenging the deeply held belief in the world that contentment comes from money and from financial gain. And so where does my, where does your sense of contentment come from, your happiness, your satisfaction. Paul says, be content. Find your contentment in Christ Jesus, in his love for you, in his forgiveness of you, in the peace that he gives you, 
in the gift of eternal life, in his grace, not in financial gain. And then he, thirdly, he speaks uh, about covetousness. He speaks to those who covet in verses 9 and 10. He says this, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul is warning people here not to fall into the trap of letting their whole life be in the pursuit of wealth. Someone once said this, I think it's quite profound, gold is like seawater, gold is like seawater, the more one drinks of it, the thirstier one becomes. Gold is like seawater, the more one drinks of it, the thirstier one becomes. And yet falling into this temptation of always wanting more, of always striving for more, is simply foolish, Paul says. We're allowing our heart and our soul to be captivated by something other than the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice here that Paul says that money, the love of money, is the root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say money in itself is evil, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's falling hook, line, and sinker for something, allowing something to grab your heart. The love of money is is talking about our emotions. It's lusting after something that is out of reach. The love of money can capture your soul. Jesus puts it like this in in Mark chapter 8. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What good is it for a man or a woman to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul. Uh, Last year, I watched the film Wolf of Wall Street. It's pretty grim and debauched. I'm not actually recommending that you watch it, okay? Um, But it is really interesting. It's the the true story of a Wall Street trader called Jordan Belfort. Uh, And you see this uh, young man who has drive and determination, he's gifted, he's got charisma, and he sells out, he sells his soul and his morals completely in the pursuit of money. And as a result, he gets sucked into this debauched and corrupt underbelly of the financial world of Wall Street in the 1990s. And I think that his story is the epitome of what Paul is talking about here in verse 10. The love of money, when you sell your soul uh, to it, is the root of all kinds of evil. Think about our world for a moment. Think about how money brings corruption into the world. We could just look at America and the way that money has corrupted uh, the the gun laws and the ability for them to change uh, the laws about guns. The desire for money can be the root of selfishness, the root of greed, the root of marital breakdown, the root of violence, the root of hatred, the root of cheating, the root of prejudice, the perversion of justice, the root of isolation. 
It's like Paul is speaking here right into the heart of modern Western culture and saying, if you love money, you are opening yourself up to all kinds of evil to enter your life and into our society. We've seen it. We see it all the time on our, in our newspapers, in the lives, in our lives and the lives of those around us. And Paul makes it clear that the love of money leads to people too from wandering from their faith. Why? Because they get sucked into idolatry. They make money more important uh, than the Lord Jesus himself. More important than their relationship with God. Something that we've heard Jesus warn about time and again. The New Testament doesn't advocate a, a, a gospel of poverty that we can only be in a right relationship with God if we're poor or we're living by faith or we're giving everything that we have away. No, God in his very nature is a generous God. He wants to give us good things. Jesus doesn't condemn money, but he does condemn the love of money, the idolatry of money. And so I think there's a big challenge to all of us who are living and are consumed by the Western culture that we live in today. This Western money-centered, possession-centered culture is to keep money in its rightful place and to dare to be countercultural. When the narrative of this world says, you know, we're to spend, 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 Christians are called to be countercultural, to give and save and then spend, to give and save and spend, to budget and plan carefully so that we prioritize what we need over what we just want, where we have to make choices about what we can really afford so that we have money to give, so that the money that we have doesn't become our God. We need to constantly be checking our attitude to money Don't cover money. Don't always be striving for riches. Remember that what we have is God's, not ours. And so Paul says, be content. Be content with what you have. Don't cover money. Don't always be striving for riches. But then he says this in 1 Timothy 6 verse 11. He says, pursue righteousness godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Pursue righteousness. Rather than pursuing money and success, pursue being right with God. Pursuing being right with God is something that will last forever. Pursue godliness and faith. Uh, Maybe this Lent, spend some time looking at studying uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount uh, and how he makes it explicitly clear to us what it looks like to be godly, what it looks like to be Christ-like, to be his disciple with our money as with every aspect of our lives and to remind ourselves that contentment comes from our relationship with Christ first. He says, pursue love Not a sort of mushy, romantic, hearts and flowers, Valentine's Day love, but a practical love which is lived out in a world, lived out in action through kindness and selflessness, a love which flows from our love for Jesus. And then he says, pursue endurance and gentleness. Keep going. 
Keep putting Jesus first. Keep running that race that he's called you to. Keeping your eyes fixed on him to find that contentment and that satisfaction that we have in Christ Jesus. But you, man, woman of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Amen.